thankful to be your associate pastor. Um, still getting to know all the faces and all the names, so I thank you for being so uh, just helpful to our family while we've been here. It's been a month. It's crazy. It has been a month since we got here, um, and a crazy month at that. And so, uh, excited to be with you here. I talked with Nick last night. He called me and. You know, he said, man, how are you doing? How are you feeling? I said, man, I can't wait for you to be back, man. I want you to be back. Just come back. I said, I miss you, man. And so I, you know, I told the guys in the back, I said, I don't know, I don't know how Nick knew this, but I think he intentionally set me up to preach the day after LSU loses. I just, it's wrong, man. That's wrong. So, but uh, yeah, Nick is doing well. He says he feels rested, and that's what I prayed for this week for him. Just want our pastor to be well rested come back and minister out of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read the text, and we'll be in Psalm, Psalms number 102. <clears throat> read the text, and then we'll pray together. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me, answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my burn my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on a housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will rise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion, he appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute, and he does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height, from the heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die. That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem, his praise, when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word, for we need it now, and we need it every day. God, let it be a reminder to us of your faithfulness. God, how you are steadfast and loving kindness, despite our circumstances. Lord, I pray today that our hearts would be open, God, that your text would govern the way we live our lives in this world, that we would be a beacon of truth in the city of Baton Rouge and the entire world, promoting God's glory in the 
and salvation through the Son, Jesus Christ. Bless us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Everybody's been asking me, what's the biggest adjustment that's been in Baton Rouge? And I'll just be honest with you. It's not the food, because I've lived here before. It's not anything. It's the roads. They're terrible. I mean, they're terrible. I don't know how you people live in this. So, uh, you know, people tell me, it's interesting. People tell me, hey, you know, it's over there off Seagin, you know, you know. I, I, don't, I don't know these roads. So, like, Google Maps has been my best friend. I still, I mean, I basically use it to get to the office every day. That's how crazy it is. I've worn out Google Maps. And what's interesting about Google Maps, for me, I was kind of playing with it the other day. Like, you can zoom in on somebody's house. A little creepy, I understand. But you can zoom in on somebody's house and see their yard, you know, see the lawn gnome in the front yard and stuff like that. See all their patio furniture. And then you can zoom out. You can actually see their street and kind of the surrounding area. And then you can, you can actually zoom out and see the state. And even Google Earth will allow you to kind of look at it and see the entire world. It's actually interesting. It's kind of what the Bible does. It provokes us actually to do something similar to what Google Earth is doing. It's kind of zoom out and see what's actually going on in light of our circumstances. And that's what the psalmist here in 102 is doing. He's saying, despite your afflictions and your suffering... You need to zoom out and see the grander picture of what's actually going on. You're to contextualize your suffering in light of God's truth. What is actually going on? So just as in like a puzzle, when you put a puzzle piece in there, you don't just focus on that one puzzle piece, do you? No, you, you zoom out and you see what that puzzle contributes to, the puzzle piece contributes to. And it's the picture that it represents. And that's what the psalmist wants us to do here. Saying, look, we understand. We understand suffering. Understand affliction, understand pain, understand these things. But we have to zoom out and see, what is God doing in this world for his glory? What is he doing? What can we hold on to in, in suffering? What is steadfast? What is going to remain? What is going to be fortified and established? That's God's character, and that's God's truth. That's what we have to do in suffering. We have to zoom out and say, what is going to be steadfast? What is going to remain? And the psalmist gives us that. His character. And so the first point on your outline is this. You need to just kind of set the table. God's people experience affliction. And look, I, I mean, it's not nuclear science. It's not rocket science. I, I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. God's people, we experience affliction. We experience heartache and trouble. We understand that. We look around in the world and we see. We know there is affliction and suffering. And for here... Even the psalmist, he, he tells us about his own suffering. Even in the superscription, it tells us, wh what's this about? A prayer of the afflicted one, when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. The psalmist knows suffering. Now, we don't really know what, what's going on, the situation. We can take some guesses at it, what's going on. Maybe he's in ex exile or something. He feels kind of hopeless. He's got all these promises about, in 2 Samuel 7, that there's going to be a Davidic king that's going to sit on David's throne, and it's going to be an eternal king. It's going to be an eternal throne. It'll be established forever. And that king's going to come and save all his people. Maybe he's, he's sitting there and he's being afflicted and he's waiting on this. And he's seeing kings rise up and fall. If you, if you think about the book of First and Second Kings and even Chronicles, I explain it to people like this. It's kind of like a really bad season of American Idol, if you understand it like that. You're like, how is it a bad season of American Idol? What are you talking about? Is that we all put our hope in one like person, right? One contestant. Oh, they're going all they're going to win this thing. And then they like hit a bad note and then they're cut. It's like, oh, man, I thought they were supposed to win. That's, that's the book of First and Second Kings. 
That's what it's about, is that they put their hope in one king. Like, oh, this is the guy. This is the Davidic king. This is the second Samuel 7 guy. He's going to reign forever. And then he's cut short. He sins. So maybe that's the psalmist. He's waiting on this king. He's waiting on Zion to be rebuilt. But it seems kind of bleak at the moment. It seems kind of hopeless. The, the psalmist is being afflicted and he's saying, man, is this ever going to come? Maybe I've, maybe I've believed in vain. Maybe there is no king coming. Maybe Zion won't be rebuilt. Maybe this is the end. Maybe this is it. And so he goes through verses 3 through 11. He tells us about his affliction. He, he describes it through metaphors and expressions. And what we get here is that it's affecting this suffering and affliction, the totality of his person. It's hurting his body, hurting his mind, his spirit, and even his faith. If you look at this, starting in verse 3, he says, For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. So his body is being hurt through this affliction. He's feeling bodily pain. Next verse, my heart is struck down like grass and is withered. He's discouraged. He feels hopeless. His heart is downtrodden. Next, in verse 6, he says, I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake at night, and I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. He feels lonely and restless. We all understand the feeling when you can't fall asleep at night. It just feels, it's terrible. So the psalm is explaining himself, man, it's, it's affecting my body, this affliction, this suffering. My mind is discouraged. My heart is discouraged. I'm restless, and I feel hopeless in this. And on top of that, on top of just feeling those things, his enemies taunt him. His enemies taunt him. In verse 8, all the day my enemies taunt me. They, those who deride me use my name for a curse. Kind of what it means is that they're kind of associating his name with turmoil. affliction. like, man, I don't want to be like that guy, Andrew Hunter. Whew. Worst of the worst. You know what I mean? Oh, man. Don't want to go through an Andrew Hunter-like situation. That's what he's using his name as. No offense to you, Andrew. But he's associated with that. His enemies see, man, this guy is suffering. He's going through affliction. I don't want to be like this guy. This guy's forsaken. He's forgotten. Nobody knows him. And the psalmist, he presents, in the book of Psalms, presents enemies like this. When they taunt God's people, if you look back in Psalm 42.10, they taunt God's people by saying, where is your Lord? Interesting. So the enemies of God's people see the afflictions, see their sufferings, and they say, where is Yahweh? Where is your God? If you're suffering, then you can't have a God. He can't be real. It's the same arguments the atheistic community today makes. Oh, there's suffering in the world. Oh, there's pain. There's heartache. Can't be a God. Doesn't make sense. And that's what's going on with the psalmist, is that he's feeling these taunts. He's saying, man, I, I feel like I've been forgotten. I feel like I've been forsaken. My enemies taunt me. They come at me. I have no enjoyment. You, you look at it, even the small task of life, like eating bread and drinking, they're associated with mourning and sorrow. Nothing brings him satisfaction. Nothing brings him joy anymore. His body is hurt. His mind is broken. His heart is discouraged. He's being taunted. He feels hopeless, forgotten, and forsaken. And there's no relief for him. 
even looks like at the end of verse 11, I wither away like grass. It's like he realizes that his days are cut short. He knows that he's coming to an end. He knows that he's transient. And we get that in the rest of the Bible, right? We, we know what righteous suffering is. It doesn't seem like this psalmist has done anything wrong. So he's experiencing suffering for, we don't know, but we get that. Job, look at Job, is all about that. Job's a righteous man, and he's suffering, and he doesn't understand why, but we as the readers understand that God's testing Job to show that he is a righteous man. And even, even in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the perfect righteous sufferer, that his pain was so, so terrible that he is sweating blood in the garden. We understand righteous suffering, but in that moment, we don't get it. We don't understand it. Why is this happening? What's going on? And we, we resonate with some of this language, right? Maybe you've said some of this. Maybe you've felt some of these expressions, man. Why has God left me alone? Why has he forsaken me? Why is this happening to me? What, what did I do? Why? Why me? Where is my God in this? The situation looks grim and hopeless for the psalmist, and may even for us to the point of our affliction and suffering is so bad, it feels like it's going to take our life. But interesting, the psalmist does something. He zooms out. He says, hey, you can't just be narrow and focus just on the suffering. You have to zoom out and see what is God doing in your life and in his grand picture of what he's doing in the world. The psalmist zooms out and says, contextualize your suffering. Frame your suffering and affliction in light of God's plan and purpose and will. And so he gives, us, he gives us five things, five spiritual realities. So that's the next thing on there is that, that the psalmist gives us five spiritual realities for those experiencing affliction. And I, I want you to write this. I didn't put any, any dashes on your paper for this, but three things that kind of are going to describe the five things that we're going to go through, the spiritual realities, is that these are objective. So they're objective. They're comforting. And they're governing. So comforting and governing. One, they're objective because they're true because they're from God's word. Two, they're comforting. These things, these spiritual realities are to comfort us in the midst of affliction. And three, these spiritual realities, they're governing. They're telling us how we are to live in light of suffering in the midst of suffering. So let's go through these. Number one, first spiritual reality is this, God's eternal reign. You look at verse 12. So you see the change here. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. God is enthroned forever. He is an eternal king and he has an eternal reign. And what is comforting for that? How is that comforting to those going under affliction? It's this, that God cannot be dethroned. He cannot be deposed. He is not like Israel's kings. If you look at Israel's kings, the, the way in which they ruled is kind of a reflection of how they died. If you look at Joash and Ammon, how did they die? Their servants killed them. Their servants killed them. That's a bad way to die. And it was a reflection of how good a king they were. They were terrible kings. But the great thing about our God is that he is a God who is enthroned forever. He cannot be deposed by mere man. And the psalmist brings that up in the book of Psalms, in chapter 2 actually. He starts why do the nations rage, and why do the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth, they take their counsel together. So you get this picture of kings of the earth coming together like, hey, let's take out this Yahweh. He's not the king. We are. So you see that picture. And one of my favorite verses of the entire book of Psalms is this. It's verse 3 of chapter 2. His response to these kings taking counsel together, he says this. He who sits in the heavens, he laughs. He laughs. It's a joke to him that these kings would come against him. It reminds me, my mom, when, uh, when she would get a babysitter, she would get some of the, the boys from the youth group to come and babysit me. Instead of the sweet girls in our youth group, she'd get these delinquents uh, <laughs> come babysit me. And uh, she wouldn't just get one, she'd get three, which was, I mean, worse. So, you know, what they do, they say bye to my mom, she'd walk out, and, and they'd take me out to the trampoline. And they'd get on there, and they'd powerbomb me, you know, choke slam me, do all their new wrestling moves that they wish they could do on each other, but hey, let's do it to a 10-year-old kid, because that's way more manly, you know. <laughs> so they would choke slam me, and you know, I get so frustrated and mad. I get, I get upset, and I, I come at them, and they, they're like, <laughs> and they push me back down. Now, I'm not trying to equate these youth boys with God, but a similar situation. It's a joke to Yahweh that man would somehow try and dethrone him. Because he is a God who is enthroned forever. And he will not be deposed. And that is comforting for us going through affliction. That whatever, whatever our circumstances may be, our God sits enthroned forever. He will not be deposed. And not only that, he's unlike any other king because he's a good king. He not only eternally reigns, he's a good king who eternally reigns. He always does perfect justice and righteousness and care. He always cares for his people. Man, I, I wish we had some of those qualities in some of our presidential candidates. You know what? We've never have a pre- we'll, n- we'll never have a president like that. We've never had a president like that. And we don't currently have a president like that. Because there's only one God who reigns eternally, who's perfectly good, wise, and just. And that is Yahweh. That is our hope. doesn't matter what the flow of history comes. doesn't matter who takes the presidency. We have a God who sits enthroned forever and he will not be deposed. That's our comfort in affliction. So however we may feel, whatever the circumstances may be, God sits enthroned. Second thing is this. Not only does God have an eternal reign, but God has enduring promises. God has enduring promises. Look at verse 13. You will rise and have pity on Zion. And you skip down to verse 16. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. So along with the psalmist hope and, and a messianic king coming and, and him eternally reigning, he has these promises that, that Zion will be rebuilt. So he takes hope in his affliction that God is going to be faithful to his promises. What he said is going to come true. And what are those promises? Well, we've already talked about 2 Samuel 7 and this messianic king who's going to reign eternally going to come. But also, he, Zion, what does that mean? What is Zion? Well, in the book of Psalms, the psalmist connects the Messiah with Zion. In Psalms chapter 2 again, verse 6, it says, I have set my king on my holy hill, Zion. That's from Yahweh's mouth. So he's connected this Messiah and this place, Zion, together. So The eternal king will reign in Zion. And it's the same thing that John in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verse 1, picks up on. He says, and in his his 
in his vision, he says, man, look, behold, on Mount Zion, the Lamb. So he sees that. So the Messiah and Zion are connected. And what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? It means for the afflicted, our city is not here. God's people's city is not here. There is a future city that cannot be torn down because there is no sin there. It's the new heavens and the new earth, and it's where God reigns eternally, and it's where His people are happy forever. That is the hope in our affliction is that despite what of our circumstances are, wherever we're living geographically, we have a city that is perfect because a perfect king reigns there. That is our hope. And there's also kind of some application for us here that I just kind of want to hone in right now. Is that verse 14, for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Interesting. It's kind of this picture of people like holding things and cherishing them like in hope of something. Kind of like a little girl would hold a bear after her father gives it to her and he's gone off to war. She's cherishing it, waiting for the day that her father will return. The people are waiting for the king. The people are waiting for Zion. And the same thing for God's people now, for us, is that is there an eager expectation for us when we endure suffering and affliction? Is there an eager expectation of, Lord, please come. We want his return. We want the Lord's return. Is there an eager expectation? Does suffering and affliction increase expectation for the Lord's return? Another thing to think about is in verse 17. So yeah, God reigns eternally. And yes, he has enduring promises, but in the midst of that, in, in suffering, in those instances, he hears our prayers. Verse 17, he regards the prayer of the destitute. He does not despise their prayers. God hears our prayers. He hears our request. He's not like the idols of the nations who goldsmiths and silversmiths, they craft these idols and they give them eyes and they, they give them ears, mold these ears. Isaiah's argument in the book of Isaiah is this. Your idols, they have ears, but they cannot hear. They have eyes, but they cannot see. That is not Yahweh. God hears his people's prayers and requests. So in the midst of suffering, you can take hope is that, look, I'm not talking to a deaf idol. It's not a blind God who can't see what's going on in my circumstances. We have a God who hears. He hears his people's requests, and he answers them. He answers them. Number three. God's sufficient word. The psalmist commands this. He says, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. So he's telling, he said, write these things down. Write what God has done in the past down and write what he has said he was going to do in the future. Write these down because here's the thing. People in the future are going to need this. And what is this? It's God's revelation. It's the Bible. The Bible is given for us in suffering. But we don't really, we don't really see that. It's not really the first thing that we go, go to when we suffer and we go to enter in affliction. We don't run to God's word. Sometimes we think it's kind of antiquated and ethereal. It's not really relevant to the situation that I'm going through. That's not Paul's view of the Bible. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he says this. He says, For whatever was written in the former days 
is written for our instruction, that through endurance we may have hope. What is the Bible for? It's to help us to endure. It's to sustain us. That is what God's Word is for us. But how does it give us hope? How does it sustain us? I think one of the things that the Bible teaches is this, is that it reminds us. It reminds us. When I was in high school, I carried a lunchbox because I was a nerd. And uh, in my lunchbox, when I'd open it up, there was a note from my mom. I said, I love you. Simple note. So, you know, I'd open it every day when I go to school. See the note. My mom loves me. Whatever the circumstance, whatever I was going through, I knew my mom loved me. Oh, again, I'm not trying to equate mom, my mom to God. But that's what the Bible does for us. Is that it remind us, because that's the u- universal problem of God's people and of us, is we forget. We forget easily. When we go through suffering and affliction, we forget. We forget what God has done in the past, and we forget what he said he's going to do in the future. So we need to be reminded every day. That's why we wake up. We remind ourselves of God's faithfulness every day in opening his word. So when we, we forget, when we worry about money, we have forgotten how God has provided for us in the past. When we worry about our kids' lives, we forgot how God has pre- preserved them in the past. We have to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. And so that's why God has given us his word. And it's sufficient to give us hope in the midst of affliction. So we need to run back to it daily, every day, for hope. Next thing is this, number four. The fourth spiritual reality is this, God's consideration. It says this in verse 19, that he looked down from his holy height from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die. That he may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when people gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. God considers his people. And it's an echo of Exodus. If you remember, in Exodus chapter 2, the people are groaning, they're sighing while they're slaves in Egypt. And it says in 2, 23 through 25, it says this, God heard the cries of his people and their groaning. And God knew. God knew. So God has a consideration for his people. He's not like a deist God where, hey, he winds up the clock and steps back and says, hey, handle it yourself. No, God considers his people's pains and their hurts. And he intervenes. He engages his people. Because he loves them. And he does it with a purpose, as we see here. God not only considers, but he acts with a purpose. He saves his people. He saves them. He, to, he sets free those who were doomed to die with the purpose that all the nations, verse 22, when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. So he considers his people's hurts and pains and he saves them from them for the purpose of worshiping him. And we see those pictures at the end in, in Revelation chapter 7. All peoples of every tribe and tongue and nation they're coming together at the throne of god and what did they say they say salvation belongs to the lord and to the lamb god saves from affliction for the purpose of his worship that we would worship him and that is hope for us is that there's there's purpose in suffering there's there's intentionality in suffering and affliction that comforts us that should 
Last thing is this. Number five, God's immutability. God's immutability. What is immutability? That's unchanging, unvarying. There's no flexibility, there's no fickleness about it. It says in verse 25, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. One thing that we can take hope in during affliction, one reality, is that God's character does not change. We know human, human character. It changes a lot. Emotions change. Things change. But God's character is not. He's always perfectly true, perfectly wise, perfectly just, perfectly good. Every day we wake up in the morning, God has not changed. He is the same. Though everything around us may break and be stolen and wear out and rust, God's character does not. He's always the same. And we can trust in that. That's good. That everything around us, though it fades, though it breaks, God does not change. God does not change. He holds to his promises. Because he is immutable. What's interesting in verse 25 and 26, the book of Hebrews actually picks up these two verses and it uses it about Jesus Christ. Interesting. What is said of Yahweh here in the book of Psalms is said exactly of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. Basically, we're saying Jesus is God and he's to be trusted as well. Because his character does not change. He's always trustworthy. He will not let you down in the midst of suffering. Because he has experienced suffering and affliction. So what, what's the point of this? So we know that we have these five spiritual realities that God reigns, that his promises endure. We have a sufficient word. He considers us and he's immutable. But we have to step back and see that. That's the issue, is that in the midst of suffering, we don't come back to these things. But these things should anchor us in the midst of suffering, is that when we experience trial and tribulation and affliction, we say, thank you, God, you reign eternally. You cannot be deposed. And your promises, you have not forgotten them. You have not forsaken us. You will bring them to fruition. And we have your sufficient word to rely on each day. And we know that you consider us. You are not deaf to our, to our cries. And God, we know that you are immutable and your character will not change. We have to come back to those things. That's the issue. We have to say, these things establish us in the midst of suffering. So here's, here's just a couple of things to think about application. These things... These spiritual realities should govern how we live. And here's a couple of things to think about. So at first, we have to be prepared for affliction. And I think that's the job as, as a pastor, as the elders, is that we need to prepare ourselves for affliction. Because look, it's, it's coming. It's not exclusive to one group. Suffering and affliction hits the, the young and the old, the wise and the unwise, the good and the just, the newborn baby and the elderly woman. The lost and the saved. It hits everyone. So it's not if suffering, it's when and how. It's when and how. So as God's people, we have to say, I have to prepare myself for these things. I have to fortify these truths in me, in my heart, to know that the only way that I'm going to make it through these is because God's objective truth. So prepare yourself for suffering. 
Second thing is this, is that God and His truth will be the only thing that preserves you through suffering. It's not going to be hunting. It's not going to be your hobbies. It's not going to be Netflix binge-watching. It's not going to be hanging out with your friends. It's going to be God and His Word that's going to preserve you through suffering. That's the only thing. So when you get the bad diagnosis, when, when the doctor calls you and says, it's cancer and it's bad. When you lose your job, you have no way to provide for your family. Or when a family member dies unexpectedly, what are you going to do? What are you going to do in the midst of those times? You're going to come back to the spiritual realities that hang over all things that are objective and they do not change because God does not change. As God reigns. His promises endure. His word is sufficient. He considers us. And he's immutable. Another thing is this, is that we want to live and suffer well. We want the community of unbelievers that are around us see that we live well and we die well as God's people. That we die well. I want on my deathbed for people to say, man, he died well. Who is his God? Who is his king? Another point is this, is that for those who have not experienced suffering, and this is, this is relevant to us right now, as those who may not have experienced any effects of the flood, not suffered, our, our responsibility is this. Is that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this, is that we are to comfort others because God has comforted us. Out of God's comfort, we comfort others. So that's our responsibility. Though we, though we do not experience suffering and affliction, we're to come alongside of people and comfort them in the midst of suffering and affliction. That's what God's people do. They unite as one, and they comfort others. And the last, so as we take the Lord's Supper today, there needs to be an eager expectation here of the Lord's return. There's affliction, there's suffering. But we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And that's what we proclaim in the Lord's suffering. We proclaim his death until he returns. So is there an eager expectation in suffering? So let these truths, let them comfort you. And let them govern how you live in the midst of affliction. Let's pray. God, you are holy and you are just and righteous and we thank you that your character does not change, that you are always holy, perfectly holy and perfectly righteous and perfectly just. God, I pray now as we observe the Lord's Supper that we would proclaim his death until Christ returns and we long for that day that he will come and every tear will be wiped away, all affliction will cease. Pain will end. And God, and the Lamb will reign as King forever. And His people will be there in His city, eternally happy. God, we long for that day. Lord, let, let our motives right now, and our purpose as we walk out these doors, be to worship and serve and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we thank you. 